This podcast covers a murder that occurred in 1992. It is a true story, and while I have relied heavily on police reports and public documents, the opinions of the host and interviewees are simply that, opinions, not facts. The credibility of the witnesses and what they say is to be determined by the listener. Everyone is presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. Investigation into the homicide of Arnold Willard Holmes is still being conducted. The investigative facts tend to show that Kenneth Sidney Varney, at whose residence the incident occurred and who also was found deceased due to self-inflicted wounds, was the person responsible for the death of Arnold. Uh, there's not been an official ruling in this case as of this time. As the chief investigating officer, I can assure you that there are no known facts to implicate anyone other than Kenneth Sidney Varney at this time. Um, and that was entered December 15th, 1992. I later learned that was a letter written by Detective Pratt for Arnold's wife, who had requested it for insurance purposes. The information contained therein was very informative, given that this was two months after the murder-suicide, and while there had yet to be an official ruling, he had no facts to suggest that the crime was committed by anyone other than Kenneth Sidney Varney. You know, I would like to think that George is not the kind of guy to be that um, just devil may care about a case like that. No. Even if even if it ultimately wouldn't have brought somebody to justice or or really meant any major change in the case, it's a clo- it's a clo- it's a, or excuse me, it's an open end. I mean, yeah, it's a loose end. And, yeah, and just for the sake of being thorough. Mm-hmm. You know, you, I can't see him having just let that go. No, I don't either. I think he follows, you know, crosses all I's, uh, uh, dots all I's, crosses all T's, and that's why he does. He's very much by the book, so it's literally not a closed case because they can't for sp- very specific reasons, but that doesn't mean it's not closed in his head. And that's why it's not on the list when you contacted me at the very beginning. Yeah. Because they didn't see it as an open case. He doesn't see it yep. as an open case. But that, that's it's odd though because you know how do they classify something you know it's an, it's obviously an open homicide investigation mm-hmm. so why wouldn't it make the list I mean how do they classify those things I, I mean somebody must have put something right on the top of this case file for them to look at it and say yeah we don't count that one well and that's a good f- question I'd like an answer to that question that's a good question just from so you you know for future reference when you know because with the Waldron case it said the last words in that report were so-and-so has died there is no chance for prosecution case closed they never caught him but they f- knew but they never had enough to prosecute but they assumed that's who it was but it her name was on that open homicide list yeah so I, it is weird how they classify them and I don't know if there's any rhyme or reason to it or if it's just yeah. a I don't know why they wouldn't have simply closed this. It may be the thing that's kept this open all these years has been the simple fact that they could never produce a murder weapon. Yeah, that's pretty big. <laughs> that's pretty big. On paper, just written those two lines doesn't look good. No. It looks no, like an I open mean, case. <laughs> yeah, po- politically. 
automatically in the, in that department. Right. You could not have written that on there and, and closed that case. Because right. the first supervisor to review that prior to closing it would have crawled up his ass so far, he probably would have been <laughs> Exactly. What do you mean there's no weapon? What do you mean? Yeah, I get it now. That makes sense. And I think, you know, George is, I think, George Pratt is, is a curious study himself. I mean. Yeah. And that's the other thing. You know, um, he retired after, what, 46-something years? He told yeah. me the exact to the day when I asked him. But he, I really, I was very charmed by him, as funny as that sounds. He was just a nice type person to me. Uh, I could tell he was very wary of me, but he, you know, sat down with me and, and talked to me and for a lot longer than I expected. And um, he does get a lot of crap for how many open cases there are with his name on them, though. He does. You know, I will remark on that myself. I, I having grown up in that area and, and knowing about the stuff that had gone on in that area, George always, always took a beating by the people around there. Um, the law enforcement in that area have been ridiculed for decades. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'll tell you what I can say about it from my experience in the job. Um, there's a lot of things to be said about where you police. Mm -hmm. um, policing in bigger areas like I do presents a very unique set of challenges policing in a rural area like George did presents an entirely different set of very unique challenges. And the problem with a lot of the stuff that George investigated up there is it's a rural area where you could go days, if not weeks, without seeing people and nobody thought anything of it. Yeah. And when you find somebody that's been dead for several days and the can you know, and the that that crucial forty eight hours has passed before the crime's even been discovered, you start in the hole. Uh, yeah. George had a tough job up there. A very tough job up there. I agree. Made, I agree. It's not made easy by by a group of basically malcontent loudmouths that have no idea. I I I'm hundred percent with you because I know that for like for Jeanette's case, and it's a particularly it has its a, a whole set of different challenges. I know that from the moment he took the case, I felt like okay. Whew, but the problem is there was a tug of war over that case, and that tug of war did not just end when when Tulaski assigned him to that case. For days, they were still assigning city and um, county cops to do certain tasks, and to this day, I don't know if they shared all their work product. And so that, how can you do your job when the people that are supposed to be assisting you are not giving you what they're supposed to be giving you? It is very difficult. Yeah, and that's not... And it still happens yeah. to this day. Yeah. I yeah I know I mean it's I feel bad for him I, I I feel I'm glad that we talked because for this whole time I've been feeling like I'm the only person that saw him that way and was I making a bad judgment call about him but that's the judgment that I I landed on that he is a competent cop I think he had attention to detail and in every case of his that I have ever went he has taken it as far as he could possibly take it with the resources that he had and the ones that are still open are open for a reason that I can explain and see that is reasonable. Yeah, I, I mean, absolutely. And he, I think George, I think you're right. Your assessment's very accurate. Yeah. I'll tell you, I think the biggest thing that I've noticed in this job, the biggest, the biggest thing that pays dividends is, um, the, the biggest attribute that somebody can have is persistence. Yeah. Yes, exactly. To get in there every day and to just keep plugging at it and keep plugging at it until there's yes. nothing else to do. And I know through like Jeanette's case, he kept plugging at it till he 
technology changed and he could submit more things until technology and keeping as much records out of the hands of people as he can. I mean, he has huge resentments for how much information got out. And I can imagine what it feels like every time you can't close one of these cases. It's got to be frustrating, but particularly a violent crime like hers in this city that is still getting so much press and knowing that your name is the one that's attached to it and everyone's blaming you and then um, knowing that you have defenses that you could defend yourself but you really can't because it doesn't matter nobody's going to listen to what you say you know know, there is this Um, I can tell you that's one of the toughest things you know any given day any of the cases that I'm involved with if you get on MLive for example and you go to the comment section mm-hmm. <laughs> and you read some of the absolutely just ludicrous shit that people will write about law enforcement I know and you really want to get on there and let them have it but yep. you can't your hands are tied because you can't tell people what you know I know I know because I go I fall down those pits of I fall down those pits of fiery hell because that's exactly what they are and I I, I, I spend more time and saying defending law enforcement just as a general rule and saying what you just said is stupid and let me tell you why and getting in arguments with people that I have no business getting in arguments with because it it just irritates me that people have these opinions and impressions that are so patently false and they'll just say the worst thing. Listen, I have no problems with criticizing a cop if I think a cop did something shitty, but Absolutely. but that is not the it's not the average it's not the norm it's the crap we see all the time on TV and yes I have issues with certain things too but I I get really frustrated when the default has become cops must have screwed up in fact my last episode of my podcast covered that basically because I heard it so much in Jeanette's case I heard it so much about different conspiracies in her case and it's irritating and when that becomes the public perception you have a problem solving cases because if the community doesn't work with the police the police don't have a magic ball that they can all their information comes from they you guys do depend on people giving you information and so we are just as much at fault when things don't get solved as police are it's a 50 50 thing here but people don't want to own up to that you know and it's frustrating well you know people generally don't like having the accountability placed back on them no Uh, and it's that's just one of the many frustrations in this job that's just how it goes and it's a dangerous position for everyone to be in. Everybody loses in that case. It is. It is. But I do, I, George, I think, uh, took a lot of heat and a lot of beatings that he didn't deserve. No. And I guess, we're, you know, a lot of the play, in, in any, it only takes a few people repeating the same shit a couple times for it to just get picked up. And yes. it just becomes, well, that's, everybody knows that. This was what everybody says Yes. Now. Uh, and I think that's a lot of the problems with those communities like that, too. And I know in the very early stages of that investigation, they were talking about a stranger potentially taking a bus out of the area. And, you know, those types of crimes happen in a place like that. And the people don't want to face the reality that they're, they're, that that lurks among them yep. in their neighborhoods yep. and in their communities. Yep. They would much rather that be a nameless, faceless stranger that they've never met than to have to re- just reconcile the thought that that exists here and not only that but reconcile the thought that so many of them helped perpetrate these false conspiracy ideas about things that never occurred because they just kept parroting it back throughout the community the 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 conspiracies surrounding this case are what make up most of what people believe occurred 
So yep. if you have a whole group of people from where you're hoping the leads will come, most of which think one of three things that are false, then you're 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 swimming up against you know you're swimming against the current is what's happening for law enforcement from my perspective and and I'm not law enforcement so I can't tell them how to change the rules but what would combat that is a little bit of real information what would combat right. you know not everything I know you can't give away the kitchen sink but uh, just enough to knock out the people that are spreading the shit and yep. there's very easy ways to do that with very few words but there is this entrenched feeling we will not say one word this is an ongoing investigation blah 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 blah, blah. and then the case gets away from you and then that's yep. why it gets away from you you know there are two extremes that exist in that world there's the extreme of people demanding to know everything right now and the other extreme is law enforcement saying we're not saying anything yep. at all yep uh, we've got to find some middle ground there. And I, I'll readily admit that in this job, one of the worst, uh, we tend to be our own worst enemies in that respect. I, I'm convinced that one of our biggest problems with the public, and this is my problem with like body cameras, is that you can show the public plain as day whatever happened. You can put that in there, out there for the world to see. The problem is they don't understand the process. They don't understand why we do what we do. So they can see something, but they're left to interpret that however they feel they need to interpret it. Without any context beforehand. Yes. Yeah, exactly. That's the true. disconnect is that we're not we're not doing a good enough job in involving the public in our in, in our lives. Um, at Kent County, we do the the Citizens Academy, um, and people will come in and they'll go through this three month deal where they they attend classes and they get to ride with us. The problem is the only people that we have doing that are predominantly the elderly. They're interested. <laughs> cute. But we can't get we can't get, you know, the people, the moms and the dads and the kids, the college kids. And granted, everybody's got a life they've got to live, they've got to work, they've got to put food on the table, but we predominantly get retirees in that program. And it's great, like having them out there, but they're just not they tend to support us anyway. They're really not the crowd. Yeah, exactly. That's not your target audience. Well, you know what you need to do? That you need to work that into some school curriculum. If you could get it, it would into the be great, if we could do that, it yeah. would be really great. Work it into. We. I am a firm believer, and we've got way too much emphasis on sports and not enough on civic responsibility. Kids need to learn about everything from voting to the city council and to riding with the cops and the. And that's where we need to make some changes. Absolutely, I think. Absolutely, and get school credits for that. The more you learn, the better citizen you are. We've got to figure out a way to work that into the curriculum. Because if you can get the kids involved, you can get the parents involved. You see, they'll be out there at that baseball game, all right, or the football. Absolutely. Yeah, we spend way too much time teaching people how to be, you know, members of the workforce or students Mm -hmm. and not enough time teaching them how to be a citizen. Yes, exactly. As far as the Arnold case is concerned, I think this story has pretty much reached its conclusion and it wasn't nearly as intriguing, I suppose, as I thought it would be. Well, it had some twists and turns and I'm glad you shared it with me because it was interesting and I kind of feel like we we got it on that one. We we know what happened probably. (laughs) Yep, I can see why it didn't make the list. I guess I just, I'm, I'm curious as to why. Yep, me too. Maybe one day I'll figure out how Michigan State Police classify their open homicides so that I can better understand why the normal Waldron case was on my 2013 District 6 open homicide list, but not Kenneth Varney. Norma's killer had died, and with him, so had her case. With Mr. Varney, there were certainly enough questions that I could see why it would technically remain open. So why wasn't his name on that list?
It could be something as innocuous as the person at the post who had made their list for Lansing when I put in the FOIA request had just failed to include it. By now, I'm guessing that you have an opinion about what you believe occurred on October 19, 1992, at that trailer home in Lincoln Township. How comfortable are you with having your opinions roughed up a little bit? Maybe chained to the bumper of an old Ford and dragged down a long country road for a spell. I hope your answer was somewhere in the realm of saddled up and ready to ride, because now I'm going to introduce you to another layer of information that will further underline why this case has ended up where it has. Before we get to the gun, because you know that's where we're going, I have a few other details that I want to clarify, which may or may not play into your calculations. Basically things that after going over the whole report myself, they stood out enough that I jotted them down. Some of these things are little things, like how young Ken actually called his brother-in-law Ray before he called police from that payphone in Ashton. In his statement, Ray, who is married to Paula, said he'd gotten two calls from young Ken that night. In the first call, Ken told him that he had found Arnold outside with blood on his head, that he was stiff, and that he thought he was dead. Ray advised him to call police. Ken hung up and did just that. He would call Ray back again after his call with the police. Ray and Paula are important because they were also aware of a handgun that had belonged to the parents of her mother, and this would be the gun that would eventually get traced as a possible murder weapon in this case, because the last they knew of it, Ken Varney Sr. had that gun. It was a 22 caliber pistol, and that's the gun we're looking for. But we'll wade through that muddy water in just a bit. Let's go back to the scene for a minute. And another thing that I noted of interest. When the trailer home was searched, multiple weapons were found, none of which ended up being the weapon used on Arnold Holmes. But 22 caliber ammunition was located in a top drawer of a dresser in Ken Sr.'s room. And atop that same dresser was the holster we mentioned with a belt attached. So the whole thing, belt and holster, was found on the dresser, perhaps indicating that it had been removed together at some point, maybe even recently. When Ken Sr.'s body was found, he was wearing pajama pants. So it's hard to imagine that he'd been wearing that belt and holster when Arnold arrived, though I suppose anything is possible. The report also notes that Ken Sr.'s car title, his car keys, and an unopened piece of mail for Ken Jr., which turned out to be a music CD of the Columbia House variety, were all laying on the bed Ken Jr. and Sherry had been using, presumably left there by Ken Sr. just prior to committing suicide. Another small thing that I noted was that while Arnold had not taken his pipe, and we thought perhaps that might have meant he did not plan for a long trip, the day he stopped by the trailer, 
his big lighter, and Prince Albert tobacco were found in his shirt pocket, suggesting that he may have just forgotten the pipe that day. I did, however, uncover what I believe is a larger discrepancy, though. About an hour of time in Ken and Sherry's timeline, to be specific. Billy, Ken Jr.'s former mother-in-law, says that they dropped her granddaughter off across the street at around 5 or 5.15 p.m., the day of Arnold's murder, and then came to her house and stayed for about 45 minutes to an hour. Nikki, Ken's ex and the mother of his child, corroborated that time. She said her child had been returned early that day, and she remembered this because she had looked at the clock and noticed that it said 5.12, right at the same time that her housemate remarked that they had brought the little girl home early. Now, 6 p.m. was the scheduled time that Ken had to have his daughter home, and that had been established by the courts prior to this date, according to the report. So that is Billy and Nikki both saying that they brought Ken's daughter home around 5.15, then went across the street and stayed for another 45 minutes or an hour, which would have had them leaving Kalkaska around 6 or 6.15. But that's the time that Sherry said they first arrived in Kalkaska and turned the little girl over to Nikki. Sherry stated this, quote, She's supposed to be back by 6. We got a half-hour leeway, and we were a little bit after 6 because the roads were bad. She said they went across the street to visit with the mother-in-law after that, and it was 7.21, according to Sherry, when they got in the car to leave. She said, I have a habit of looking at the clock when we get in the car. Now, as you can see, that's a whole hour difference, which would have had the couple back in Ashton about an hour earlier. When I look at witness statements, I look for memory anchors, things that will make their statements more credible. So in this case, I would personally go with Nikki and Billy's time frame simply because of the 6 p.m. established deadline for the child to be home and even the housemate remarked that they were getting her home early. That would be before 6 p.m., not after. That deadline was an established time, so it stands to reason that the child being brought home early would be noticed if that wasn't his regular habit. Also, that's three different people corroborating that time. Now, the implications of Ken and Sherry getting back into town an hour early may or may not sway your perception of what occurred because... Essentially, all it adds is the possibility that they could have been at the trailer earlier than they suggested. Google tells me that it's about 64 miles from Kalkaska to Ashton, and it gives a travel time of just over an hour. If they made one stop, and they say the roads were bad, let's be generous and say an hour and a half. Based on the times of death on the death certificates, if they left when Nikki and Billy said they did, around 6.15, rather than the 7.12 time frame, that Sherry gave. That gets them to the scene about 45 minutes after Ken Varney shot himself, at about 7 p.m., and about an hour after Arnold was shot. Frankly, there's enough wiggle room to get them there sooner or later either way, but I'm not sure it changes the events to follow. Other than, it doesn't seem like enough time for a body to get stiff, but we also have to remember that it was cold, and, according to Mark, it was snowing like a bitch. So any perceived stiffness could have been attributed to the cold, I suppose. That would be a question for a medical examiner. Now, let's talk about that gun. The gun that has played a starring role in this case. What if I told you that the gun that showed up at the pawn shop in Georgia, with the same serial number as the gun listed as having once been owned by Russell Yvonne, 
father of Sandra Peters, who was the ex of Kenneth Varney Sr., might not actually be the gun that killed Arnold Holmes. What if I told you that the serial numbers match, but the physical description and the ownership history, according to other witnesses, might not? Do you personally think there's a possibility a gun trace done by law enforcement could be wrong? Do you think there's room for error? In order to answer this question, we first need to look at how gun traces are done in this country. Law enforcement call us with a serial number and say, can you look this up in the system? Well, that, that's not how it works. It's not just punching the serial number into a system that has all this information. We're actually piecing together every step of that firearm to the point where it was sold to an individual. There is no national database. There's no national registry of gun ownership in America. We're contacting the manufacturer. They're able to tell us what wholesaler they transferred the firearm to, and the wholesaler can tell us the retailer that they transferred it to, and the retailer should be able to tell us the name of the individual to who the firearm was sold. Okay, the date of transfer, okay, the last name of the purchaser. If a trace request came in today to one of these dealers that's gone out of business, a tracer is gonna walk out here, find the shipping container that they need to find that dealer in, and sort through those boxes until they find the one box of a certain time period of the records that they need to complete that trace. This is not a storage facility, this isn't a warehouse. We do scan them digitally as a static digital image, but again, uh, in not creating any kind of a searchable database or artificial registry of, of gun ownership, we go through a quality control process to make sure that we captured everything that's, that's relevant, uh, and then those records are destroyed. We can't punch in a name, we can't punch in any kind of information and search it. What we're essentially doing is cataloging all of those records in sort of an index system so that we can go to a particular dealer a particular period of time, but then we're still searching one record at a time for that particular sale of the firearm. The single biggest reason for a trace to fail or be unsuccessful or, or at least be delayed is a bad firearm description, an invalid firearm description. What's not fixable is if a dealer doesn't have complete records. Uh, if the dealer went out of business and didn't realize that it was his obligation to submit his out-of-business records. Uh, if the dealer sustained a fire or a natural disaster and the records were destroyed. Those are the kinds of things that, that we can't do anything about. Early in the investigation on October 22, 1992, Detective Pratt wrote, the whereabouts of the yet-to-be-identified 22 caliber handgun, which has been described as a Ruger revolver, possibly an eight-shot, that has a black finish, plagues the undersigned. A holster, with belt attached, lay on top of the dresser along the north wall of the master bedroom, on top of other items, which indicated to the undersigned that it had been placed there very recently. Although Varney is known to have been hard up for money, if a person is to sell his pistol or revolver, for instance, he usually lets the holster go also. The first person to mention a 22 handgun that Ken Sr. might have had was Mark Holmes, at the scene that night, in fact. He knew about the weapon because he'd once been married to one of Ken Sr.'s daughters, and the gun in question had belonged to Ken Varney's ex-wife, Sandra Peters, and that ex had gotten it from her parents. When he was first asked about any handguns, Ken Jr. did not mention this gun. Only after Mark had mentioned this gun to Detective Pratt, did he say that he did remember it, and then began a series of possibilities as far as what he thought happened to it. First, he told Detective Pratt that his father probably threw it in the swampy area on the property. 
Later, he would tell him that he thought it might be in the chimney of the house because the day of the murder he saw a ladder butted up against the house. But when Detective Pratt went back there, the ladder was not even tall enough to get into the top of the chimney and nothing suggested that anything had been put in there recently. Through investigation, other people mentioned this gun as well, including Ray and Paula. Even Sherry and Ken Jr. at one point or another both mentioned that they were aware that there was a handgun on that property at some point. Ken Jr. finally remembered seeing it the summer before when it was being used in target practice. So where is it? What the detective knew was this. First, we have an empty holster, which is sitting on a dresser on top of other things attached to a belt and appears to have been put there recently. We have multiple witnesses who are aware of Ken Sr. having possession of that particular twenty-two pistol that could be traced back to his ex's parents. We have the bullets removed from Arnold, which appear to have been shot by a weapon that was not found at the scene. We have twenty-two caliber ammo that was found in the same dresser where the holster and belt were left atop a pile of other things. We also have a shell casing that was not attributed to any of the weapons at the scene. It was a twenty-two caliber shell casing. After a search with the firearms unit of the Michigan State Police Central Records Division, Detective Pratt learned that a Sturm Ruger twenty-two caliber six-shot revolver, serial number 111959, was registered to Russell Yvonne on December 14, 1970. Russell Yvonne is the father of Sandra Peters, who was once married to Ken Barney. By all accounts, Ken had that gun. This is the weapon that is believed to be missing from Varney's residence because it was last known to be in his possession. This is the weapon that we're all assuming killed Arnold Holmes because if it's not, where's the weapon that did it? Where's this mystery weapon that nobody seems to know about? In November of 1992, Detective Pratt entered this weapon into the lean NCIS system as stolen so that if it did turn up, they could trace the whereabouts back to the crime scene. I would like to note here that there was not only no other weapon confiscated from that trailer that could have been the murder weapon, because they were all tested, there was also no other twenty-two caliber handgun known to have been owned or possessed by Varney Sr. that could have done the job. This is it. This is the gun. And yet. In 2011, the lean entry of the gun produced a hit. From the Michigan State Police Supplemental Report, dated 5-23-2011. This case has remained dormant since 1993. Because the weapon was entered into lean and CIC, it was believed to have been an inactive file. A Ruger 22 caliber revolver, serial number 111959, could be placed in the custody of Kenneth Sidney Varney, who committed suicide at the murder scene, when the hit was received on May 13, 2011, by the Dawson County, Georgia, Sheriff's Department. The original case jacket could not be located and has not been located to this date. Arrangements were made with Sergeant Tim Murdoch of the Dawson County, Georgia, Sheriff's Department to contact the 400 Jewelry and Loan Shop, 66 South 400 Center Lane, in Dawsonville, Georgia. 
Sergeant Tim Murdoch determined that on May 16, 2011, the Ruger Bearcat 22 caliber revolver, serial number 111959, had been sold by 400 Jewelry and Loan Shop on May 2, 2011, to a licensed federal firearms dealer. The questioned gun had been sold to the pawn shop on April 18, 2011, by a James R. Hill. According to Sergeant Murdoch, who contacted Hill, he had obtained the gun from a relative who's had the gun since the late 70s. On September 8, 2011, another firearms trace was requested of the ATF on the questioned firearm. On the 19th, the trace was returned, which revealed that the Ruger Bearcat 22 caliber revolver, serial number 111959, was sold by the Santa Fe Wholesale Company in Kansas City, Missouri, which is now out of business, to a Russell Joseph Yvonne of Saginaw County in December of 1970. When Detective Ramsey contacted Mr. Hill, it was learned that he had obtained the gun from his wife's uncle Norman, who resides in Greenville, South Carolina, where he has lived, according to him, forever. In the late 70s, he got the gun from, quote, some guy who owed him some money. After the contact with Detective Ramsey, who contacted him at the undersigned's request, Mr. Hill stated that he went to see Uncle Norman, who's in his 90s, but very lucid, and told Mr. Hill that when he got the gun, it was new in the box, and that he had never shot it, and that he got it from a guy who owed him money, just like he had told him in the past. According to Mr. Hill, he was told by Uncle Norman that the gun had never been out of his possession until he sold it to Hill. Mr. Hill was then advised that the questioned gun had been traced through ATF to Michigan, being purchased on December 14, 1970, by Russell Yvonne from a business in Kansas City, Missouri, which is now out of business. Mr. Hill advised that he visits Uncle Norman from time to time, and if he learns anything additional, he will contact the undersigned. One of the final notes on this supplemental report reads, Based on the information of the last supplemental report regarding the ATF trace, the interview with James Hill, and the determinations made by the crime lab, it would appear that the believed recovered gun was not the weapon sought on this case. The gun is being returned to the current owner. If you believe the family and multiple witnesses who were aware of it, the only 22 pistol Ken Varney was known to have possession of was the one his ex-wife's family had registered in Saginaw in 1970. I suppose there could be a mystery 22 pistol that nobody is aware of, that Mr. Varney had hidden around the house somewhere, and on the day he killed Arnold, he fetched it and did the deed. From my perspective, that seems the least reasonable of the theories because that still requires us to believe the huge coincidence that the gun that hit at the pawn shop just coincidentally was once owned by someone Kenneth Varney lived with. We also need to consider that James Hill, the guy who allegedly got the gun from Uncle Norman, isn't telling the truth. I see nowhere in the report to suggest that his story was ever verified in any way. In fact, Uncle Norman himself doesn't even appear to have been asked about this. From the report, it looks like Detective Ramsey of the Dawson County Sheriff's Department 
took Mr. Hill's word on how he had obtained that gun. It's easy to see how the story of Uncle Norman, the 90-year-old who allegedly passed the gun on to James Hill, could have been misremembered. Perhaps he confused the origin story of that particular gun with that of another that he had. Either way, it doesn't appear that there is any actual paperwork to verify his story, that he'd gotten it from someone who owed him money in the 70s, and that James Hill had gotten it from him after that. We only have James Hill's word on all of that. I feel like this story could be the poster child for a push for federally mandated gun registration. Anyway, all of that is the stuff we have to consider when we decide what we think happened to that gun. It certainly explains why we are where we are today. What do I think? Well, first, I feel obligated to remind you that everyone is to be presumed innocent until proven guilty. The opinions of the interviewees and myself are simply that, opinions. I will base my opinions on the facts and details in the police report. As Detective Pratt noted in the report, there is absolutely no evidence to suggest that Arnold's murder and Ken's suicide were anything else but that, both committed by Kenneth Sidney Varney. But I'm also not confident that the gun that produced the lean hit, the Sturm Ruger 22 caliber six-shot revolver, serial number 111959, formerly registered to Russell Evon on December 14, 1970, is the wrong gun. I think it's the gun. I think all that muddy water around its origin story, given secondhand by the man who says he got it from the 90-something, adds nothing to it but confusion, because there's no paperwork to back it up. There are also a few what I will call cosmetic things to consider in the mix, though. In this paragraph, it describes the weapon that was sold to the customer at the pawn shop, who Detective Pratt would later ask to mail it to him so he could test fire it. On this date, the undersigned received the Ruger Bearcat 22 caliber revolver, blue steel with gold-plated trigger guard, etched cylinder, serial number 111959 via U.S. mail. Under this, in the remarks section, it is noted, The gun that was known to be in the possession of Kenneth Sidney Varney was described by several parties as blue steel, with no mention of the gold-plated trigger guard or etched cylinder. The holster that the gun of Varney was kept in is a larger holster than what the firearm received would require. Now, I can see why we need to consider the holster size, but I dare say that Kenneth Sidney Varney wasn't someone who likely ever had unlimited funds with which to procure specially fitted accoutrements for his weapons. He could have picked up that holster at any time and been using it for the pistol because it was the only one he had for a handgun. Nobody in the report had any information about that holster or suggested that it had not originally come with the twenty-two pistol he got from his ex. The gold-plated trigger guard and etched cylinder are another question. How noticeable was this feature? Was it something that people who knew about the gun were likely to recall, particularly if they had only seen that gun while someone else was holding it? As Detective Pratt earlier noted, it had been described by a few people as blue steel, but no one had ever mentioned the gold trigger guard or etching. I will post a picture of the gun on my Facebook page, and I'll let you decide on that point. The final possibility that I believe is probably the most probative of the gun information is that after being test-fired, the recorded land and groove measurements of the pawn shop gun 
did not match that of what was found on the fired bullets retrieved from Arnold Holmes. But even taking into account that those slugs were mutilated, and it's hard to say with any level of certainty that accurate measurements could ever be made for comparison to rise to the level of being definitive, without the actual recovered bullets for microscopic comparisons, a positive determination could not be made anyway. Let me put it this way. None of this evidence tells me it's not the gun, and what most strongly tells me that it is the gun would be the registration and serial number which produced the hit in the first place. You know, how we normally track guns, by their serial numbers. I think this is the gun, admittedly wrapped in a whole lot of confusion that, in a court of law, might create reasonable doubt. And that is bolstered by the fact that, as late as April 20th, 2013, according to journal entries in the report, the note says, Penn's discovery of murder weapon for comparison. That sure sounds a lot like Michigan State Police aren't sure they have their weapon, and I can't say I really understand why. And here's the final thing. I also think there's a reasonable amount of circumstantial evidence to suggest the murder weapon was removed from the home by someone other than Kenneth Sidney Varney. Based on the times of death, there does not appear to be much opportunity for him to have gotten rid of the twenty-two before he killed himself. In addition to that, as was outlined in the report, the property, including that swampy area, was searched. No gun was ever found. Could they have missed it? Sure, I suppose they could have. But how does that explain a gun once in the possession of Kenneth Varney, as late as the previous summer, according to his son, end up in a pawn shop in Georgia? There's no evidence to suggest that Ken sold it to anyone. And here's another thing. Why would a man about to kill himself bother to dispose of a gun in the first place? That doesn't make a lot of sense. If Mr. Varney didn't dispose of the pistol after he killed Arnold, before he shot himself, what the heck happened to that gun? Are we supposed to believe that from the 6.45 p.m. time of injury to Arnold to the 6.57 time of injury listed for Ken, that's 12 minutes, that he hid the gun somewhere on the property or off the property, came back, entered the trailer, located and set out the car title on his son's bed, found the long gun, walked out to the apple tree where he removed his shoes, and then grabbed a branch long enough to engage the trigger? Does that set of supposition seem reasonable within the context of the rest of the facts? That's what you have to ask yourself. We have no evidence to suggest that Mr. Varney ever left that property after he shot Arnold, and if he did, there was scant time to do what he did thereafter. I do remember early on asking Arnold's cousin why he thought two guns were used at all. Why not kill himself with the same gun that he had killed Arnold with? Why not, as you're standing over the body of Arnold Holmes, just put that gun in your mouth and pull the trigger? The answer I got was that a shotgun was more likely to get the job done. Many a victim of attempted suicide have lived through the experience, some damaged for life, because they used a less powerful weapon. But here's how I think about it. I hesitate to mention it, but I think it's important and it goes to my last question about why he'd use a different weapon for himself than the one he used on Arnold. The medical examiner did say that it could have taken Arnold up to five minutes to die. Whether or not he was conscious during that time, we will never know. But the one person who would know is Kenneth Sidney Varney. If he shot Arnold and then watched the man die, realized that it was an instant, 
that it actually took a couple minutes for the man who'd let him live rent-free in that trailer for over a year to die? That might have been all it took for Ken Varney to decide on a shotgun rather than the 22. When we take everything into account, we add to that set of facts that there are only a limited number of people who could have entered that trailer after Arnold was found, but before the police arrived. So essentially, our choices here are Kenneth Varney Sr. somehow managed to hide that gun so well in the 12 minutes between when he shot Arnold and shot himself that no one has ever found it. Or someone else removed the gun from the property. So I'll leave you with this last nugget of wisdom, which I've stated before, but it bears repeating. A crime scene is usually just what it looks like. You get to decide what this looks like. I'd like to say this, though. Given that there are still quite a few questions about this case, if you're a local resident and have heard anything specifically about that gun, or anything that may have gone on at the crime scene before police arrived, I'd love it if you contacted me. If you've heard something over the years about that gun that Kenneth Sidney Varney once owned, shoot me a line. There's a Down and Away Facebook page where you can leave a private message. I'd also like to give a special shout-out to Brett Holmes, cousin of Arnold Holmes, the law enforcement officer that assisted me on this case. It was fascinating, and I appreciate your time. Thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review on iTunes. Reviews help podcasts get more exposure so that other people can discover it too. And today, I would like to give a special shout-out to my one single-star reviewer to date. Although I have no doubt, I will get more. KittyCats37 wrote, Not good. This woman is uninformed and not very bright. Too bad, really. Please take her off here. Kitty cat, come on now. You know you love me. As a wise law enforcement officer said to me recently, if you're doing the right thing, only the wrong people are going to bitch. I'll see you guys next season.